Please turn with me to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. We will be looking at verses 17 through 36 this morning. 17 through 36. At Paul's trip back to Jerusalem. And um, it's going to start pretty good, but it's not going to end that good. Before we uh, do this, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help with the text this morning. Oh Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, Father, we, we pray so many times that you will guide us through your word and to it. But Lord, we pray that you show us our own sin as we come to your word. It is living and active, as you've told us. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces even to the soul. And so as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would pierce us to our souls, that we would see our sin, that we would turn from it and then turn to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. As a young youth pastor... I went to uh, the Cumberland Gap area in the border between Kentucky and Tennessee, and um, it's a really poor area of our country, and it was myself and a lot of the youth in the church that I was at there in Mississippi and uh, several other adults, and we went to, to lead VBS and serve the community in various capacities. And for me, I was probably 25 at the time, so just a young kid, and it was a completely eye-opening experience for me, unlike anything I'd ever experienced, unlike anything I'd ever seen. Um, we went to these local houses, and we canvassed them, and we asked the kids to, and we invited them to VBS, and we told them we'd come pick them up, and it was just um, poverty and just bad conditions and just really depressed people and just needy folks. And after we done got through, we stopped at like a Burger King or something, and I just cried for three hours in front of all of my students and the other kids, the other adults that were on this trip. And it was so overwhelming for me. I didn't have a category for the things that I'd seen the depth of the poverty that, that these poor people had to endure. It was just so much for me. Through that experience, the Lord taught me a whole lot about myself, how prideful and arrogant I was, and how privileged I was, and to the, ex- the extent to which I needed Jesus all the more. I look at that trip really as a turning point for me as a person, as a man of God, truly changed the way that I thought about life, the way that I thought about ministry. In our text today, Paul is coming back from his third missionary journey. And we've, we've, we've trekked those journeys as we've went through the book of Acts. We've seen them firsthand. And we've read about them firsthand and the many things that have gone on. A lot of times, unfortunately, Paul's journeys become fodder for maps and they're just easy to forget. And the trials that he went through and the many amazing things that he saw and the many times that he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, even through difficult times and adversity, 
Jesus told him, remember in Acts chapter 9, he said, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. And he did. Paul did suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. It was not easy street for him. In our text, he's going to enter into Jerusalem again. And he has some stories to tell. Some life-changing events that have happened to him, much like my trip to uh, Appalachia. This isn't coming, though, from a 25-year-old kid who had no experience like me. He was a hardened man who had seen every kind of depravity. And he experienced physical, emotional torment and traveled much of the known world at the time for the sake of his Lord Jesus Christ. Another significant part of the text that we're going to look at is the fact that Paul is not going to have very many free days after this. He's going to be basically taken in our text and he's going to be taken to Rome. And there's some evidence that maybe he had an additional missionary journey after this time, but maybe not. But he didn't have a whole lot of days left of freedom. His end was in sight. He was going to be arrested and ultimately killed for his faith. There, the way that he handles himself here in the text and how he presents himself to his accusers I think is very helpful for us. We'll also look at the accusations that they have against him, how similar to some of the things that we're going to have to face and how we should then respond to that. And does it mean that we should change what we do? Does it mean that we should act differently in the face of those things. And I think it's important. And so as we look at this passage, I want us to consider three main ideas. First, the things that God had done, the things that Paul didn't do, and then what we must do in response. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 17. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their to our customs what then is to be done they will certainly hear that you have come do therefore what we tell you we have four men who are under a vow take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourselves also live in observance of the law. For us, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went to the temple, giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, 
the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people of the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the people, or then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he, actually, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, Away with him. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Just a quick review of where we've been and why Paul is now back in Jerusalem after being in Europe and Asia Minor for years, basically. Paul wanted to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, the Feast of Booths or Weeks, as sometimes it's called, or Pentecost is a, a Greek name for that with his fellow Jewish folks and particularly with the church. On his way home, he had several stops and he dealt with persecution from his fellow Jews. And he stopped in Syria, as we looked at last week, and at Caesarea, and he's finally back in Jerusalem. And his first stop in Jerusalem, as we read in the text today, was to see the elders of the church. And so what's going on with that? Why would he go see them? More than likely, at this point in church history, and the, particularly the church in Jerusalem, all the other apostles, the 11 that were still living at this time, had all ventured out into other missionary areas, some of them very far away, some of them not so far away, but they were all over the place. And they would all eventually be martyred. And those martyrs would take place everywhere from Rome to India, perhaps as far east as India. So they were reaching a very wide audience for the gospel. And from their work sprang up churches all over the place that were trained by, and then they trained the elders, and the elders then led those churches. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in Jerusalem. The church of Jerusalem was probably very large, just based on the numbers that were given in the, in the early part of this book, on the numbers of conversions that were taking place there. Tradition holds that there were 70 elders appointed there in the city to that church, and the idea was then to counteract the 70 members of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council for the Jewish leadership. Maybe that's true, but what we do know for sure is that James here, the brother of Jesus, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He, of course, later went on to write an epistle that we're all very familiar with, uh, and at this point, he is the one that Paul needed to go see. 
Because Paul, in many ways, don't forget, he was commissioned by this church in Jerusalem via the church in Antioch. But ultimately, it was the apostles in Jerusalem that said, yes, Paul, we support your ministry to the Gentiles. Go and do that. And they were excited about it. So here he comes back giving his report of all that had taken place, which is quite a bit. Luke is just kind of giving us a summary here in in the book of Acts that we have. And this isn't any way for Paul to prove himself to the fathers there of the church. Many of those men that were there probably knew Jesus firsthand. But they needed to hear what was going on in the church around the world. And this was Paul's chance to do that, which brings me to the first point, the things that God had done. Look with me at verses 17 through 19 again. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. One by one, the things that he had done would have been fascinating to be there and hear that account. But notice what Paul relays to them. He doesn't relay his superstardom to them, but he relays to them the things that God had done. If you consider everything that happened on his third journey alone, with his time in Ephesus and running from the Jews and all of the different stops that he had and the little vignettes that we have throughout the book that we've read through. Everything that's really happened even since his conversion, which was just an incredible story to begin with, right? He went into the city and the Jews found out and they came after him and he was lowered down in a basket. And Paul's never really had a dull moment. It's kind of like an action movie reading through here. All these years and years that have passed, he could have easily showboated his greatness, talked about how great he was and how intelligent and wise and shrewd and and even crafty when it came to his enemies. If he went anywhere among the Christians in Europe and in Asia Minor at the time, Paul would have been a superstar. The name of Paul the Apostle would have been widely known. In many ways, we could look at him as kind of like the first celebrity pastor. He didn't have his own radio show or anything, well, because there wasn't radio, but he probably would have. Had there been radio, Peter and James had a lot of local influence, but Paul's influence was all over the place. Literally in the entire known world, probably, people knew about Paul and what he was doing. He traveled through centers of influence and culture, was unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preached it boldly. His popularity would grow and grow. His fame increased in the church. And in the enemies of the church as well. He was growing a lot of enemies. As we see here, they find him no matter where he is at this point. And what does he talk about? When he comes in to report his mission, what does he talk about? The things that God had done. Church, we have to be careful with this one because people mean well when they say things to us like, we really love what y'all are doing in Murray. If you talk to anyone in the denomination, 
right now. They're really excited about it. And they time and time again, we really love what y'all are doing. Keep it up. Mike, you're doing a great work in Redeemer. And I always cringe a little bit because I think I don't really do a whole lot, actually. Uh, I'm very quick to explain to them that the credit goes completely to the Lord and what He does. Because of Him, the church is doing the things that we've been able to do. That's it. There's no other explanation for it really at all. This is a good paradigm, not only for the church and and what we are doing, but really in everything in our lives. As we look around at the things that He does and what He's done for us, we have to echo the words of James, the brother of Jesus. What did he say in the very opening portion of his book? Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. That's it. Our job is to serve, to give glory to the Father, who is the giver of all good things. And we have to think about this for a minute, because think about the world that we live in. If the only person that we ever talk about when it comes to anything that's going on in our life is the giver of those things, what kind of impact is this going to have? Because when you meet people who don't talk about themselves constantly, but are quick to praise others, how does that make you feel? It makes you feel like you can trust them. It makes you feel like they're honest and humble. You don't feel the opposite. You don't feel like you need to get away from those people. You feel like you want to be with those people. The world has nothing but selfish gain prideful boasting and in order to keep up what do you constantly have to do what we constantly have to one up what other people are saying or the stories that other people are doing or trying to live the way other people are living or you just lie all the time and you become a very deceitful person if we as god's people only give credit to what god is doing which is everything that he's that we have he's is what he is doing it will open a lot of doors for ministry for us, everyone is used to the church is talking about numbers and baptisms and bank accounts and all these other, this other stuff that isn't that important. Let us be a church that talks about what God has done instead. And that brings me to the second point, the things that Paul didn't do. Notice how these elders here in Jerusalem react. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. And when they heard it, They glorified God and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. Now, we've been reading through this book, and we know that what Paul has been accused of is not true. First, they glorified God, and I want to note that. The elders there heard what Paul had done, and they glorified God because of it. Don't miss that. They were glad for the things that God was doing among the Jews and the Gentiles and the other parts of the world. It wasn't just about the Jerusalem church, but it was about the whole church. And so what do we read here in the rest of this? What are they asking Paul to do? This, is, this can kind of be confusing. These Jewish converts to Christianity, what it's saying here is they were zealous for the law. 
These Jewish converts loved the law. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not saying that they thought the law was a means of salvation at all. That's not what this is saying. It's just saying that they loved the law. It was as Christians, you and I should love the law of the Lord. It is a good thing. He only gives good things. And so we can love the law without seeing it as a means of salvation. That is, those are two completely separate things. And a lot of times, unfortunately, we want to intermingle those things. We want to call someone who, for instance, wants to uphold the Sabbath. We want to call them legalist because, well, really, we just don't want to uphold the Sabbath and we're jealous of them. And so that's what we'll use terms like that. But there's nothing wrong with loving the Sabbath at all. It's a good thing. It's, it's a law of the Lord. Nothing wrong with that. So what's going on with here? These new converts love the law and the Judaizers who were a group that did think that the law was necessary for salvation were telling them, hey, Paul doesn't love the law. This guy who you've heard is doing good things for the Lord, he doesn't love the law. He is telling Gentiles to forsake Moses. And Moses was like the one who brought the law down from Mount Sinai. He was the first five books of their Old Testament. Genesis through Deuteronomy. He was telling them to forsake that. Can you imagine that? He was telling them not only that, to forsake their customs as Jews. And here they were at the feast of Pentecost. And Paul's saying, you shouldn't even be doing this. Of course, these accusations were false. Paul was in town to celebrate a Jewish feast. He had recently taken the Nazarite vow, as we learned in a previous text. He was an active Jewish man. He wasn't doing this at all. But these Judaizers hated Paul, as we've seen throughout the book of Acts. They were here in Jerusalem to arrest him. So the elders of the church in Jerusalem, they have a plan to put Paul in a good light. And this is their plan. They wanted him to sponsor these four men who had taken the Nazarite vow. Remember, the Nazarite vow was a vow that they would take in order to set themselves apart for the Lord's work. And then they would abstain from alcohol and they would abstain from certain other things and they would grow their hair out. They wouldn't cut their hair for this whole period of time. And then at the end of the law, or at the end of the vow, they would all go to the temple and have their heads shaved, and they would pay some sort of offering. Well, what's going on is they're saying, you need to take these four guys with you, go to the temple, go through this process of purification. Paul probably needing to do that anyway, having been among the Gentiles for so long. And these other four guys would go through this, this normal process. And then when it came time for them to have their head shaved and all make the offering, the money offering... Paul himself was to pay that as basically as saying, hey, look, I'm totally into this Jewish stuff. Here I am. I'm paying the thing. I don't hate the Jews at all. Here I am sponsoring this particular Jewish ceremony. Why would Paul do this? To show Jewish believers that Paul was still a Jew. He hadn't forsaken Moses. But he still even practices their customs. Now, admittedly, this is a bit difficult, is it not? Because Paul, why did Paul 
have to do something that made him clean. If Paul had been preaching the whole time that ultimately he had been made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. My answer to this question is I don't know. Uh, I think the best explanation is that the church there thought that this was going to be the best way to ease the tensions for this. Not actually to purify anyone. I don't think the church in Jerusalem actually thought this, this particular purification rite was going to do the thing that it was supposed to do. But it was simply going through the motions. And a lot of commentators see this as the last vestiges of that ceremonial law going away. Perhaps. But I think as an important aside to us, what we need to take away from this for sure is that this does not mean that we should start celebrating those customs again. Don't go get excited about the Nazarite vow and think that that's some way that you can somehow earn some favor with God that you didn't have before. Well, I've, well, you know, I'm not like the normal Christians. I'm doing the Nazarite vow, so I'm like that much closer to God. Then you're doing the very thing that Jesus died to free you from doing. All of those things in the past point to Christ. He came, and with the advent of the new covenant, they're all laid to rest. They give no merit. This And this gives no merit to something like the Nazarite vow or a purification ceremony. All of these things have ceased. Christians do not need to do them in order to gain favor with God. To do that is to undermine the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we have to be careful with that. And so that brings me to the last point. What should we do? What must we do? The Judaizers were coming to arrest Paul. He didn't even get finished with his purification ceremonies. We'll read. Look with me at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, into this, or into the temple, and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And then there's this whole riot that goes on. I love the, uh, they laid hands on Paul, who probably wasn't a formidable figure by any means, and they, they're asking all the crowd to come help them deal with this one man. Um, fascinating. Paul wasn't even able to finish this ceremony. He was found out. They, uh, they were found out by the Judaizers, and again, the Judaizers are a group of Jews who thought the law was a means of salvation. And so this riot follows Rome, who's... The Roman soldiers who are probably sitting on some watchtower someplace see what's going on and they bring a group of soldiers there. No small group of soldiers. We see that centurions in the plural are involved. And so if there are just two centurions and that's 200 soldiers, they were called centurions because they had 100 soldiers under them. And so you have this big army coming to see what's going on and to settle this riot over one man bringing four other guys to have their heads shaved in the temple. Kind of crazy. 
And next week, Paul is going to offer a response to Rome. And we're going to look at the rest of, of that and, and the rest of 21 and, and 22 in his response. But back to the Judaizers, who ultimately leads to Paul's arrest. What are their charges against Paul? And you can see them there. They charged him with three things. Teaching against the Jews and against the law of Moses and against the temple. Having brought a Gentile into the temple. And that he had defiled the temple. Three very heavy charges. We need only to look back at Paul's sermons through the book to see that Paul loved the Jews. That he loved the law of the Lord. Also, he would not have brought his friend Trophimus to the temple because that would have meant the death of his friend. That would not have been something that Paul would have done. We don't see anywhere, any time where Paul is endangering his friends. If anything else, he endangers himself on behalf of his friends. And he defiled the temple was another charge. This was also the charge, consequently, that was brought against our Lord himself and against Stephen who was stoned for that. Again, another silly charge against Paul. Paul was a Jew among the Jews. He would not have done anything to defile the temple, even though he didn't believe the temple had any merit at all. He, he saw the temple as obsolete, but he wasn't going to defile that. That's not what he did. They couldn't charge with Paul with anything actual, so they attacked him personally, and they made some crazy charges up against him. We should take note of this because the world is becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. We have a choice to make in that. Will we stand for truth or will we take the easy road? For Paul, he could have simply switched his doctrine here. He could have been one that switched his doctrine depending on who he was standing with, right? He could have said... Yeah, the law does save you and still sprinkled a little bit of Jesus in there for good measure, maybe to make the Judaizers happy and the Jewish Christians happy. And everyone would have been happy and Paul would have been safe. And if you look at the church throughout the generations since Paul, and even today, there's a thread of truth that has always persisted, thankfully. And that's good. And it has persisted even though... Many churches, perhaps the majority, preach a different gospel with just a tiny little sprinkling of Jesus to make it sound all nice. Today's different gospel isn't necessarily one of works. If you went into most evangelical churches and you said works save you, they would say, no, that's not true. They they would actually rebel against that. They wouldn't want to have it. But their gospel instead is one of self. It's about glorification of self rather than Jesus, which is ultimately a gospel of works and not grace. Sure, the name of Jesus is sprinkled lightly in there, but most evangelicals don't even know who Jesus is. In a recent study that came out, 75% of evangelicals think that Jesus is just another created being that we should model ourselves after, that lived a good life, and we should live that life too. 75%. They say things like grace and faith, but they never say anything like repentance because that involves admittance of guilt and denial of self, two things that are obscene 
in the church today. Rather than talking about the things that God has done, we like to talk about the things that we should do to make ourselves better before God. Maybe even a Nazarite vow, right? That sounds like a cool new hip thing to do. What will we do then with the gospel message here? Trust me, it's a lot easier to make people feel good about themselves. We could easily make some sort of ad that says, Come to Redeemer, where you'll find meaning for your life today. Some snazzy, ambiguous thing like that. We could use buzzwords like purpose and vision and let your light shine or whatever. And we could uh, make people think that they're really special all the time. Isn't that what they want? We can make this church be about us. And we can sing our praises. And we can sprinkle a little bit of Jesus in for good measure. Just in case someone's watching and wants to know if we preach Christ. Yeah, I've mentioned his name twice today. Or we can stand firm in the faith given once for all to the saints, the common salvation that we have alone in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the plain gospel message, is it not? Salvation is the work of God alone. The Father choosing His people from the foundations of the earth and sending His Son to save them. The Son... Offering himself as a sacrifice for his people, giving to them his perfect righteousness in exchange for their sin. And the Spirit raising the Son from death to life, therefore securing an eternal inheritance for the dead and lost people of God, whom you and I once were. And then miracle of miracles, bringing those dead sinners to life causing them to repent and to believe in the very works that have been carried out by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This, brothers and sisters, is the faith that we will stand on. And if they find fault with us, they'll have to make it up. They'll have to make up things like they did with Paul because the gospel that we preach will be from the very Word of God. In conclusion... We do have that choice before us. And as we embark on a very exciting time as a church, in our life as a very young church here, we are going to have to fight the temptation to have that wishy-washy message because it's all around us. Let us be people who never waver, but to continue to teach the plain truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we are lying if we say we're never tempted by this, because we are. We love the praise of men. We love to hear our name. We love to see it in lights. And it would be very easy for us to go the direction that many have gone. And so, Lord, help us to not do that. Help us to stand firm upon the foundation that you have built for us the truth of your gospel the truth of your word lord help us to cling to it and it alone 
Help us, Lord, to cling alone to your righteousness, not to anything that we can sort of drum up ourselves, but to your righteousness alone as the source of our salvation. It's in your name we pray. Amen.